Hey everybody, it's Matt here. And before we get to the episode today, I just want to invite you to slay this giant of sexual sin with us. I want to invite you to consider doing an event with us. We have so many different kinds of events that we could do. There's events for men, there's events for men and women, events for parents, for youth, for young adults. There's Sunday morning preaching. Um, some of the events that we do are for our one-time things and some are weekend-long conferences. And so if this is on your heart and you'd like to address sexuality and porn in your church or in your circle, in your ministry or whatever that might look like, uh, I would invite you to go to restoredministries.ca slash events. You can see what's possible there with some things that we've done in the past. And we're also very flexible with working with different event organizers and, and churches in what it can look like for their particular setting. And so if you have it on your heart to carry the message forward of, of freedom and wholeness and health over sexual brokenness, I would love to chat about what that might look like. Go to restoredministries.ca slash events. And at the bottom of the page, you'll see my email and feel free to email me. We can hop on a Zoom call together and look at what doing an event together might look like for you. Hey, Pure Victory Tribe. We recently interviewed Chandler Rogers from the Relay app. Yeah, you can hear his personal story and the story of why Relay was created on episode 141. Chandler personally overcame a struggle with compulsive pornography use, and then he used his experience to give back to others by creating Relay, a group-based recovery app for people wanting freedom from addictive sexual behavior. He basically built what he wished he had during his healing journey, tools to manage recovery goals, an SOS button to reach out when feeling triggered, and a system for accountability with peers, all in a private safe space. So you can find out more about the Relay app in the show notes and learn more about it or join a recovery group at www.joinrelay.app. Welcome to the Pure Victory Podcast, full of hot tips to help you win at sex, conquer porn, and find purpose in staying free forever. Here are your hosts, Matt Klein and Brad Hafner. Welcome back, everybody, to the Pure Victory Podcasts. We are now on a part two of a two-part series with Doug Carpenter, and we are so appreciative that he is here with us today. And if you want to know more, I would recommend you go back and listen to the first episode. In that one, he talked about his book, Childhood Trauma and the Non-Alpha Male. Um, Really informative, really helpful, and we recommend you check the book out, but go listen to the podcast, part one there. In part two today, we're going to be talking with Doug about another area that he is deeply passionate about. And he has written a, a book as well, Secret Shame, A Survivor's Guide to Understanding Male Sexual Abuse and Male Sexual Development. And this is something that Matt and I, I mean, we've, we've encountered so many people that have passed, um, whether it's trauma, abuse, and, and specifically in this area, now it's informing their present and even their future if it, it hasn't been dealt with. So this is a serious thing that many have gone through, more than we know. Even Doug was sharing some stats with us before, and he'll share that uh, today. It was, wow, like it was eye-opening yeah. <laughs> for sure. So Doug, thank you so much for being here and talking with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this uh, and to talk about my book. This is definitely a topic I'm very passionate about. And when I get going, I can talk 900 miles an hour about this. So you might have to slow me down (laughs) and focus me because I feel like my brain is a walking encyclopedia when it comes to this topic. I spent six years writing this book and I have read hundreds 
and hundreds of research articles. So, well, well, I talked to hundreds or thousands of people about it too. Yes, and yeah, and I've been doing this work for over twenty-five years. So, yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's great. I don't know. I speed up podcasts sometimes. Can you slow it down? Maybe we'll need to slow it down. (laughs) You may need to slow it down. Yeah, good Um, stuff, Doug. Do you have your own story with this, or like, how did it come to pass that you wrote this book? I do. When I was twelve years old. I struggled with forming male friendships as a kid. And so I finally had a male friend in this, I believe I was in the sixth grade. And so I started going over to his house and at his house, there were Playboy magazines everywhere in this house. It was like better homes and garden. Like it was just on the coffee table. It was in the bathroom. It was on the poker table downstairs. It was everywhere. Mm. And his mom lived in the home. Like it was just no big deal. Well, I was raised in a very strict conservative Christian home. I'd never been exposed to something like that. So I was just fascinated by this. And in the process, that boy started doing sexual things to me. And even though we were the same age, he had much more knowledge about sex because of what he had been exposed to. And I mean, the first time I ever ejaculated was at his hands, Mm. you know, which, you know, some people would say, well, that's not really abuse. That's same sex, you know, Mm -hmm. play or interaction. Well, but I would say that that interaction affected me later on as if I had been abused. I see that as abuse. Yeah. I, I feel like both of us were abused because his parents had this pornography laying out everywhere. Yeah. You know, and then that led to him wanting to do things or try things out on me. So in a way, I feel like we were both abused and then he took it a step further. Right. So I've always had an interest in this this topic. The other topic that I've always been very interested in was sexual addiction. But every time I would work with a man who was sexually abused, they would often have, there's a high correlation between early sexual abuse. Yeah. So over the years, I searched and searched and searched for a a book and a resource to help men understand the connection between their sexual abuse and how they ended up very sexually preoccupied as an adult. And I never found a resource. Mm. So I set out, I'm going to write one. So that's how I ended up with secret shame. And then the workbook that goes along with it is to help males understand what happened to them, why their body and their mind responded the way it did, why it awakened sexual desire so early for them and why they more than likely ended up either with a sexual addiction or being involved in unwanted sexual behavior. Right. So that's, that's the gist of the book. (laughs) I was, quoting some statistics to you all earlier and a couple of important ones that I wanted to point out was the research shows that 60% of men who experience an unwanted sexual encounter before the age of 18 will have some kind of symptom or uh, impact effect of that interaction on into their life. Hmm. 40% of men will be resilient and will not have any symptoms. 60%. That's a huge category. Yeah. Yeah. This majority. (laughs) Yeah. It's over a majority. Yeah. Absolutely. 
And then the second statistic that I wanted to throw out there is there were two really large research studies that were conducted that looked at thousands of men who had been sexually abused. And the findings were in the first research study that men held on to their abuse before they disclosed it for 25 years. Wow. And the second large study came out that it was 26 years. So that's not random. That's not by chance that two large studies mm -hmm. showed that men hold on to the abuse for that many years. And why do they hold so, on to it? Why, why is it that men hold on to it for so long? Well, the, the biggest book in the chapter is the reason why men don't tell. You know, I'm, I'm going to hit some of the more highlighting points of that chapter. There's a whole chapter in the book about grooming. Child predators are extremely brilliant people. They know how to manipulate. There's a famous man. Um, his name is in the book, uh, Dr. Michael Wellner, I think is is his name, but he goes through the six stages of grooming. And oftentimes groomers will make kids feel responsible for the abuse. For example, I hope I'm not going to be too graphic. If I start being too graphic, go shut me it. down. No, no, okay? go for it. It's all uh, good. <laughs> I know we're on like Christian and I'm, I'm a Christian too. So I'm, I'm in this camp with you. Yeah, no, it's but good. Like, perpetrators will leave pornography out and then have the kid over and then notice that the kid is kind of eyeing it and then say, well, do you want to look at that? Well, so then the kid will start looking at it and then they'll be like, well, you know, I noticed you kind of looks like you kind of have an erection. You know, do you know what's going on there? Like, do you know how to take care of that? Like they manipulate. They're so master manipulators that they will make kids think that they are somehow guilty uh, perpetuated this, instigated it somehow. So that way the kid is so confused. You know, we've all heard the classic stories where a lot of times they'll wrestle with the kid. Let's play tackle football. Well, I just happen to keep sticking my hand between your legs when I tackle you. And so the kid starts feeling confused, like, well, that it didn't feel right that he should be touching me there, but yet we were wrestling or he was tackling me. So I didn't think anything about it. And then they just gradually get the kid to where they'll go along with it or they develop such a strong loving relationship with the kid that then they turn it into this is an expression of our love so then how do you turn on someone that loves you mm, right you know so this come the grooming process is so significant and so well thought out that it traps kids into not being able to tell and one of the biggest things i think that's different between boys and, and the sexual abuse of girls. When girls are sexually abused, it's often physically traumatic for them. Mm -hmm. When boys are sexually abused, it's often not physically traumatic unless they're anally penetrated. Mm. And, and pleasurable, um, in fact, hey? And pleasurable. Yes, because the male genitalia are external. When you touch them, they respond to touch they'll get an erection. Some boys will even ejaculate, even if they don't want to, or even if they don't understand ejaculation, that may be the first time that that happened. And they have no clue that that was my case. Mm -hmm. Like I had no clue about ejaculation. And when that happened, it freaked me out to the hill because mm -hmm. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was happening. And so I think of the terror that I felt like when I look back and think, was that pleasurable? 
it really wasn't because I didn't know what was happening and it terrified me more than was pleasuring. Mm. But as it continued, it became more pleasure, pleasurable. Mm. And so like, I think boys experience this and it does feel pleasurable. And then they start to think, well, why did my body respond? I had to have liked that. No, your body was working the exact way that God designed it to. You know, if you're touched, if you're stimulated, if you're shown visual imagery that's arousing, a male body is going to respond to that. And so then the perpetrator uses that to confuse the kid further. Well, you wanted this. And, And so then... I was saying to you guys earlier that the number one side effect of males being abused is sexual confusion. Cause then the boy will be like, well, what did I do to send him the signal that I was gay? Like, am I gay? Does that make me gay? Does that make me bisexual? What did I give off that let him knew he could do that to me? Absolutely nothing. You were at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person mm, yep. who had an agenda. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter what little boy it was, mm-hmm. you know, although perpetrators have a very keen eye of how to pick out the most vulnerable kids mm-hmm. that they can manipulate that then won't tell, mm-hmm. you know, so boys don't tell for a host of reasons that I love my perpetrator and I don't want to get them in trouble. If I'm a single, if my mom's a single parent, well, my perpetrator told me that if I tell my mom that she'll get in trouble or that I won't be able to, he won't be able to watch me anymore. So then she'll have to work two jobs and I'll be left alone. You know, the things that they tell these kids is outrageous. She'll lose her apartment, you know, so the kid ultimately ends up also feeling responsible for their, their single parent that I can't tell because I have to protect my parent. You know, I've had kids, men tell me before, I couldn't tell my parents because I knew my dad would come after that man. And then my dad would go to jail And then my mom would have to take care of me. And how are we going to take care of ourselves if my Mm -hmm. dad's in jail? Perpetrators would tell kids that, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's all these psychological reasons and emotional reasons why they don't tell. Then there's all these physical reasons because my body responded. There's all these social reasons that, you know, I, I now question my sexuality and why that happened. So it just becomes so confusing for a male that it's better they rationalize in their mind that it's better not to tell i'm protecting myself and i'm protecting the other people around me if i just don't tell if i bury this and pretend like it didn't happen right i'm curious doug as you're sharing this because 60 percent roughly is what you're saying men have encountered some sort of abuse in the past and i think if it takes 25 years to come to terms with that or to either identify it or communicate it to someone that that occurred. I think often looking into the past for a lot of men, they don't understand what happened to them was abuse. Um, They don't term it that way or they don't want to term it that way because somehow that seems a a loss of control or it it informs 
maybe their understanding of their identity as a man now. So I'm just curious, uh, like how would you define abuse? I know that's a really broad spectrum because <laughs> there's a lot of ways. Like I even it think is. for myself, I've shared this on a podcast, but when I was little, I think I was four or five, um, I had an older girl that was a family friend and stayed over at her house and she did some kind of, I'll show you yours if you show me mine kind of thing. And growing up, I would never have termed that as abuse. But as I got older, I understood something happened to me that was unwanted or I didn't understand or awaken something. So for me, I understood that that was wrong, um, of course, and, and, and was able to deal with that. But many men go through experiences, whether it was maybe some sort of predator that was grooming them versus mm-hmm. a family friend or whatever, yes. or even a peer. So how would you define kind of what abuse is uh, to help maybe someone who's listening? Well, this this is such a... <laughs> broad topic i actually did my entire death uh my entire dissertation was on defining sexual abuse it was an analysis of of all 50 states and the definition that they were currently using and the amount of disparity in the definitions um so this is a huge topic my my first inclination uh to answer that is i love claudia black's definition of abuse was it which is anything less than nurturing is abuse and and i love that and i use that all the time but when it comes to sexual abuse you know in, in the book in the second or third chapter the whole chapter is devoted to how to define sexual abuse and it incorporates all the information that i analyzed from all 50 states so there's not a quick and easy answer it's just that you experience something of a sexual nature either before your development was ready for that or that you felt violated you in some way. I mean, that's, Mm. that's how I would answer that. You know, the typically abuse, if you look at all the research, if you combined all the research and averaged, averaged it all together, the, the median and the mean age that boys are sexually abused are, is typically between the age of eight and nine. Now, during that stage of life, we're in what's called the latency stage. Latency is a term that Freud used to describe the age that we are from age six to 12. And during these years, these are years that sexuality is supposed to lie dormant. You know, we're supposed to think girls have cooties at this age that, (laughs) you know, the girls can't play baseball with us because it's just the boys, you know. Um, Eric Erickson talks about this stage being a a stage in our life where we are learning how to live in the world through processes. We are learning how to be independent little boys Mm. and sexuality is not part of that. When we hit puberty and we start getting a huge surge of testosterone, then there comes a shift in our development. But the research shows that boys are being abused during this latency period where sexuality is supposed to lie dormant. And what happens with kids who are abused like this, it awakens that that sexual arousal and desire much earlier than it should ever be awakened. Your brain, your body, your emotions, you are not physically, emotionally mature enough to handle that kind of information. And even the research now about pornography is beginning to shift from first exposure to from 11 years old. And we see a trend now to where even that is shifting to where it's closer to eight years old. Now mm-hmm. the kids are being exposed to sex, sexually explicit material. Also 
sexually explicit material can be just as bad as abuse itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when a kid gets into that kind of material, it's basically, I say, it's raping their mind. Mm-hmm. Again, it's exposing them to information that their brain is not ready to process. And, and it, they can end up with similar symptoms as if they had been abused. And many abusers are using pornography as a lure. So then you've got a, a double issue there. Mm-hmm. You know, so these kids are being awakened in their sexuality much earlier than they ever should be. And that is so traumatizing. I, I love that phrase. It rapes your mind. It's yeah. Yeah. blunt, but it's true. It is very yeah. blunt. It's true. It is very, but, but think about it. What is rape? It's an intrusion. It's an intrusion on your mind, on your body. And that's what pornography does. It's an intrusion in our mind. A little boy is not able to comprehend what is going on in pornography. And, and unfortunately, pornography is not like when I was growing up, just picking up the Playboy and yeah. flipping up the centerfold right. and going, oh, look at that. It's actual videos. Now, it's hardcore stuff. It's videos that these kids are seeing sex in action that they don't understand what's going on. Yeah. But the people in those videos sure act like they're enjoying it. Yeah, they do. And that's why I say it it rapes their mind. It's an intrusion into something that they're not ready for. It's so true. And yeah. So one thing, Matt, you'd wanted to talk about was sexual development. There are, I, I love the work of Dr. Patrick Carnes. I don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Dr. Patrick Carnes, but he's yeah. basically the father of sexual addiction, the movement and a lot of the research, but you know, he proposes and other researchers have proposed that we have what's called a sexual template. And so let's take a minute and think about in the Christian world, we would prefer your development to look like at age 12, you start going into puberty, you start paying more attention to girls. You may ask her to the junior high school dance or a church Valentine's Day banquet. You get all giddy at the thought of holding hands. You eventually kiss them. You eventually start going steady. You know, then you continue to grow and then you go on your first car date you know, there's a normal, natural progression here to where you, all these things are being written on your sexual template, not as sex, but you're what we call imprinting on the girl, you know? So then when you get married or you, you find somebody that you, you want to spend the rest of your life with, you have imprinted on this girl and you get to enjoy sex with her. Right. And sex comes after marriage and, and you've got this beautiful, healthy sexual template that now you're unlikely to stray from because you've imprinted on a person and you get sex as the dessert. That is not happening in almost any boy's life today. Mm-hmm. Right, right. The sexual mm-hmm. template starts out with pornography. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you in the last five to 10 years that I've had one 15 year old boy sit on my couch who's not chronically looking at pornography. Mm-hmm. This, the stats show us that the average teenage boy watches two to three hours of porn a week. And that's mostly in short spurts to masturbate with, yeah. but two to three hours a week. So they are imprinting on sex itself, not a person. 
Hmm. You know, and that is messing up their sexual template, what they think is normal. Boys who get into sexually explicit material at a young age or even are abused at a young age, the statistics show they have higher use of contraceptives. They have higher rates of STDs. They have higher rates of teen pregnancy because they begin to start pushing girls to become engaged in sexual activity. Girls are completely a sex object. Mm-hmm. I'm not after this girl because I think she's beautiful and I, I I want to get to know her. I'm after her for what she can give me because yeah. I want all these things that I've seen. Mm-hmm. So the sexual template of boys right now is, is a mess. And I see so much sexual addiction in boys of all ages. I mean, I have treated the youngest boy I've ever treated for sexual addiction was age 11. I've had two 11-year-olds who were extremely addicted to pornography before their parents found out. And these boys literally were going through physical withdrawals yeah. when all the pornography was was pulled away from them. Wow. You know, it, and so the our normal development is being hijacked by pornography, just like it can be hijacked from sexual abuse. And that's why I say that porn rapes the mind of a young boy because wow. it can have just as significant impact as unwanted sexual behavior perpetrated by someone. Wow. Yeah. I've never really thought of it that way or that extent in the sense that our the generations coming up right now because it's so accessible, so available and so advanced in what it is compared to what it used to be in a magazine. Mm. Um way more insidious. Uh, I've never thought of it that way that in some ways, uh, our culture, well, our, our boys and, and girls too, but are being groomed yes. in a sense by a predator that's online that's abusing them and creating a sexual template that is, well, harming all of us in the sense of what family looks like, what marriage looks like, yes. um, and then our hookup culture that we're seeing these days uh, that's yes. so extreme. So it's, yeah, that's a that's a profound thought, um, and I, it, you can see it play out in our world right now, yes. which is alarming. Well, and I I hear so many boys say, or men sit on my couch and say, "I've been addicted to porn since I was twelve, but I thought when I got married I wouldn't need it anymore." Yeah, it's totally separate. Yeah, it's a totally separate beast that you have to deal with. The research shows that if a child begins any addictive process or behavior before the age of 18, it is highly likely that they will have a lifelong struggle with that behavior. And it's because the brain is not ready to process it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so these boys who've grown up looking at porn, when they get married, they're not imprinting on the girl. They're still imprinted on the porn. You know, and the desire to look at porn, the desire to masturbate does not go away. You're having sex, but then you have this on the side that will not leave you alone. It's like this nagging problem that you feel like you can't shake. And then after being married a couple of years, they tend to fall back into that old routine of, you know what, this is just easier than having to pursue this. So when you're an adult or when, when guys are adults, how do you how do you recognize your templates messed up? But even maybe more challenge, bigger challenges, how do you rectify that and fix it? Well, when men come to me and we work in this area, I do a full developmental timeline 
of their life and their sexual development and their sexual template. And number one, you have to naturally get them away from porn and get their brain to actually heal and stay away from the material and then to begin to dissect the lies that they have come to believe over time from porn, lies that they've come to believe about themselves, lies they've come to believe about women, about relationships, you know, and you have to begin to offer them a corrective experience. And the number one thing is I can tell if I have a sex addict setting in my office by asking one question. And that question is, is sex your most important need? And they will say, yes. Then I know that I have a sexual addict on my hands. They might not define themselves that way, but I'm sorry, sex is not our most important need. Yeah. Right. I mean, outside of salvation, human connection is our most important need. Yeah. You know, and if a guy looks at me and says, well, my relationship with my wife is my most important need. Hey, I've got, I got a man. I can, this is going to be easy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but when I, when that, when I ask the question, is sex your most important need? And they say, yes, we've got a lot of rewiring to do there. You know, you, I love that phrase, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. <laughs> I'm sure you've probably heard that, you know, and that's true. And if you've looked at pornography and saw women in a certain way and uh, kind of negated relationships, you've got a lot of wiring there that's going to have to be undone. Mm -hmm. and, and part of that healthy process is if you have a spouse, it's getting to relearn them all over in a different light or connecting how their how your pornography use and your double life and your secret world is actually impacting your real life because you have a private life and you have a public self and and the two are there's a huge chasm between those two right and and again it's it's very intricate for each person of, of how you begin to pull those worlds closer together and get them to re-experience living in their real life that's similar to what they give off publicly versus this private life. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm curious as you're saying that, Doug, we, we've seen a lot of men, Matt and I would have put our hands up to this too, but you try to rewire yourself on your own on an island as a psychologist who practices and deals with guys like this all the time, can you speak to that? Cause I mean, we know the answer to this, but many people try sure. to beat this on their own, whether it's past trauma, a porn addiction or any other kind of yeah. behavior in this area. Um, and it, it obviously doesn't work. So can you speak to that? Well, hopefully I'm not going to be stepping on any toes here. I'm, I'm not a big fan of purity culture <laughs> and, and all the messages that it gives. I, I do think there are worthwhile things from purity culture that sure. we need to incorporate into healing. But first of all, if, if you're somebody who is struggling with pornography addiction or past sexual abuse or sexual addiction, you need to be with a trained therapist who can help you make sense of all this and how to begin unraveling it. And you have to address the underlying wounds that are in place. You know, I, I think you both know that I'm heavily involved with husband material. And one thing I love about them is our slogan is outgrowing porn. Mm. We believe that you have a porn addiction because you have these underlying wounds that you have to address. Now, sometimes that involves 
going to a 12-step program, having an accountability partner, even putting accountability software on your computer if you feel like you need that. You know, each person's plan is is individual according to what they need. But it's connecting with other men who have found freedom, who have become healthy in their growth and their development and connecting with them. You can't walk this journey alone. You know, sobriety for any behavior or problem never works well when when done alone. It takes community. It takes connection. It takes compassion for yourself. It takes developing curiosity about yourself and your own internal processes. It's it's not an easy task. It's not mm-hmm. an easy job, but it's doable. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely doable in community. Yeah. And if you can't do it alone, that doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means God didn't make you that way. None um, of us can do it alone. None of us. It exactly. Work. Exactly. Exactly. I always say God doesn't tell us everything about us because sometimes he tells some, no. someone else something for us mm-hmm. and we need, right. we need community. Um, well, I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, even Jesus had 12. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah. You know, or some guy will be like, no, I'm not telling anybody about more, my porn addiction or I can do this on my own. That's when I, I, I always say, well, Jesus had 12 and he had three in his inner circle, yeah. Peter, James and John. And when, he, so, and when he was desperate, he leaned on them for prayer and support. So. Right. So you're telling me that you have greater capabilities than Jesus. <laughs> right. Because I'm having a hard time with that right now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I uh, can't argue with that one, eh? No, yeah. definitely not. Yeah. So one question I get that I'd love for you to speak to, and it comes mostly from people who have struggled with same-sex attraction, but it would sure. apply to everybody. A lot of guys will say, will this ever go away? Maybe our template is messed up in any way, same-sex attraction or not. Maybe they're at a point where they're free of porn, free of masturbation, they're not acting out, but still the the thoughts might come. Does the attraction, does the template ever fully go away or does it become something you can manage? Well, that's a loaded question. We yes. could probably do three podcasts just on that, that <laughs> question. Again, I think it's different for different people. I think you will experience people that the more healing they get, the less they are attracted. Like if they have same sex attraction, the more you heal, the less you want your pacifier, whatever your pacifier is. Now, a host of things can, can play into that, you know, because of your abuse, you, what you became conditioned to, you may never lose that attraction to that, but you can manage it. So, I'm in the middle of writing another book right now, and it's it's the title of is it is arousal versus desire, a war that rages. And so let me tell you a little bit about the difference between sexual desire and sexual arousal. I believe that sexual desire is the desire that God puts within us. Most little boys, if you ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up? will say, I want to be married and have kids. I want to be a fireman an NFL player, whatever, but they want to grow up and be married and have children. I think that's God's sexual template for us. I think that's his desire for us. Now life comes by and creates sexual arousal for us. That can happen through any way that your sexual template goes awry from what the original design was supposed to be. Your body can be conditioned to respond to anything. That's why we have 
a host of fetishes. There's a, a list in the book here where there's probably 30, 40 different types of fetishes that a, a person can develop. Your body can become aroused and conditioned to anything. That's sexual arousal. Sexual arousal holds your wounds and the pacifiers that you have. It is often in stark contrast to the desire that you hold. So one thing that I try to do is help men examine themselves. Is this desire, this longing, this behavior right now, is this coming out of my sexual desire or is, is this coming out of my sexual arousal? And if it's coming out of my sexual arousal, this is probably an unhealthy behavior for me. You know, I use the stoplight. I have men develop their red light behavior, their green light behavior, and their yellow light behavior. And the yellow is cautionary, like you're you're starting to get into the hot zone. Mm -hmm. You know, what kind of behavior is this for you? And which camp does it fall into? Because we want to live over here in sexual desire. And sometimes you have to go toward living in sexual desire and still grapple with all the things that are in your sexual arousal. So it may never go away. It may never alter, but we have to make a, a conscious choice of how do we want to live our lives? And do we want to be in accordance with the design that God has for us? Or do we want to live according to our flesh? Right. And, and so you know, I help men try to be able to self-examine that and then make a decision for themselves. If it changes for some, it doesn't change for some. Yeah. But I do believe all of it can be managed. Yeah, yeah, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, true. But that doesn't mean you're actively using alcohol. Yeah. It's controlled and managed. That's my answer. That's a long answer to your <laughs> short question. Well, an, a question that could take three episodes. I, I left for the last question on the last <laughs> episode right. with you. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but we appreciate that, Doug, because yeah, I think it it's be able to identify what is a good sexual desire versus what is our flesh. What is maybe a template that has worked into our life based on some sinful right. stuff that happened to us or that we've engaged in. So it's uh, that's a great kind of delineation that we need to be aware of and to work in, you know, I think that uh, to be able to recognize those things is helpful, even more than helpful. It's freedom advancement in our life, knowing these things yeah. so that we can, yeah, just understand where God, his yeah. mind is in, and in regards to what he's imprinted on yeah. us and what he wants us to live out of. So that's I powerful. I think it's the keys to unlock like self-wisdom. Yeah. Being able to live in that wise mind. Absolutely. Lots of gold here. Thank you so much for your time with us, Doug. We really You're appreciate welcome. it. You're welcome. My pleasure. Yeah. Where can people find your book and uh, and any other stuff from you? Yeah. My website is douglascarpenter.com. And uh, you can find my books there. You can find Amazon links to my books there. There's a lots of other podcasts that I've done of, of all kinds of different topics uh, that you can listen to as, as well on that site. And I have an email there if you need to email with a question. Awesome. Awesome. Well, if you're listening, I encourage you to check that out. And a uh, link to his site will be in the show notes too in his book. And uh, so thanks for tuning in. And, and uh, hey, if you want to leave a review on the app, whatever app you're listening on, we'd really appreciate that too. It just helps get the word out more with every review. So thanks so much for tuning in and we'll chat next week. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more, please visit purevictorypodcast.com to subscribe. This podcast was made possible by the generous donations of our subscribers. If you would like to help support the cause financially, once again, please visit purevictorypodcast.com.